Good morning. It is great to see you all. I'm Hannah. It's my privilege to be able to talk to you this morning. Last week, John did a great job at starting off our new series on the gospel. He explored why the gospel is good news by looking at what it is that we need to be saved from and then how we get to be saved. And this is an amazing way for us to start off this academic year, spending four weeks feasting on the meat that is the gospel. Paul famously said in Romans 1 verse 15, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For everyone who believes. The gospel is such good news. It's the power of God to save someone in a moment when they put their trust in Jesus. You know, we referenced it just earlier, but the people around us, our friends, our family, our work colleagues, they need some good news. Just felt just such a stirring this week that we live in a nation that desperately needs good news. Our neighbours need some good news. And this series, I feel, can really stir us afresh that we carry with us, wherever we go, a message that is life-transforming. It's life-changing. And in worship, we heard that thing about needing to take people's hands, you know, and lead them to Jesus. And that's what we're really praying that this series does. The verse before verse um, 16, it says in verse 15, Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul, not just in Romans, but in many of his epistles, is so eager to preach the gospel, not just to unbelievers, but also to believers. He wanted believers to thrive day by day on the wonder of the gospel, on the meat of the gospel. You see, it's a mistake to think that responding to the gospel is a one-off event. The gospel is also the power of God to continue saving believers by changing them over a lifetime. And and what is that change? It's a lifelong change away from self-centeredness toward God-centeredness. Today we're going to explore how we are changed by the gospel. And I've called this talk um, Mouths and Hearts, which I hope the significance of that will become clear as we go. But I've got a few questions for us to start off by thinking about. Um, here are two questions. Why do people do the things that they do? And how does lasting change take place in someone's life? Now, it might feel at first that these questions about change are sort of a bit of a religious preoccupation, that it's kind of people in church who are always asking, like, change questions about how we change on the inside. But I think it's really important to start off from the offset and say I think that these questions about change actually are a cry of our humanity. I don't think it's possible to be a human and not ask those questions about change, the change questions. Why do people do the things that they do? And how can lasting change take place in someone's life? What police officer, what social worker, what teacher, what parent, what person who could ever just look at the news for five minutes doesn't ask that question? 
In fact, there's a huge market for strategies that will help people to bring about the personal change they're looking for. This week, I had a little look at some new self-help books or some self-help books that have become bestsellers in 2019. And here are a few great titles for you. How Not to Die. Genuinely, I think it's ambitious, particularly because it's about food primarily, but How Not to Die is a bestseller. The Miracle Morning. Wait for it. This apparently is the guarantee to transform your life, wait for it, by 8 a.m. Now, that is ambitious. If my morning is anything to go by, that is unbelievable. That would be a miracle. Okay, the next one, the life-changing magic of tidying up. Life-changing magic of tidying up. Now, this is still a bestseller. I was bought this book a few years ago by my husband, who is a very subtle man. It worked for a little bit. Sadly, no changing, lasting change took place. But Marie Kondo, who has written the book, has now got a YouTube channel and a Netflix series. So change may still happen, people. There's still hope. These books will always be popular because there is a big market for the delusion that if you make a few small changes here and a few small changes here to how you think, your life will be the one that you've always hoped it would be. You know, the scriptures don't offer us that delusion, but they do offer us truth about how lasting change does happen. And the Word of God offers us this zoomed-out view, if you like, of God's kind of overarching plan of salvation, this big overview of how we change, and it offers us a zoomed-in view the detail about non-negotiable elements of change that we have to learn and be committed to in our personal lives so that change can happen. And I'll come to these later. But we're going to start with that zoomed out view, that big overview of how does the gospel change us. Now, there are three big stages to the Christian life. There's lots of occasions. It's justification, sanctification, and glorification. We're going to start with justification. Justification, when it's used in a theological way, means being made right before God. That is only possible when we get saved from sin's penalty. We looked last week at the fact that our deepest problem, the deepest problem to be solved, is the same for every human being everywhere disobedience, our sin that enslaves us and separates us from God. And the penalty for sin, scripture tells us, is death. The good news is that the righteousness which God demands from us, he also gives to us. God gave us Jesus, who lived a perfect life and died a torturous death. Why? so that we might be restored back to God. And how do we receive this gift? Let's look at Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul continues to explain in verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have now been justified by his blood. 
incredible. Jesus, who knew no sin, took the penalty for our sin so that we can receive his righteousness and be right before God. We are justified when our faith receives the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that work is performed outside of us, but it is given to us, it's imputed to us. In Romans 3.22, Paul says, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Through faith for all who believe. Now this is staggering. And it is hard to get our head around. Um, Another thing that I find hard to get my head around, just bear with me, are traffic regulations, particularly parking regulations, particularly in Sidcup and the surrounding areas. I don't know if any of you have this problem. I find it very hard to park correctly in our borough. In fact, I have a great track record for getting a few parking tickets, much to my husband's delight. Um, so. I managed to get one last week because the co-op in Blackfen has changed its rules about parking. And yeah, I've seen some nods and I hadn't noticed. And I think I got a ticket. Here's the thing. I can't even get out of my parking ticket through faith alone. Okay, I can't even get out of that ticket through faith alone. But now think for a moment that all of my sin, my darkest, deepest sin, far deeper than parking in the wrong place for the wrong time, over my entire lifetime, has been pardoned, not by any human authority, but by the God of the universe, by faith alone. Like, it's unbelievable. You know, if you're here today and you feel paralyzed by the weight of sin, or you feel powerless to change, we need to know this. Our connection between us and our Savior Jesus is trust. It's belief. Not an improvement in behavior. See, that comes later. But this is God's beautiful order. It's our life-giving hope that we are justified, made right before God by faith alone. Saving faith that has washed us clean and forgiven us. And his saving power in the gospel doesn't stop there. When we are justified, we begin this lifelong process called sanctification, which means being made holy. That's possible because we are saved over a lifetime from sin's power. Justification saves us from sin's penalty. Sanctification, it's an ongoing process as we are saved from the power of sin. So we're going to turn to Romans again, chapter 6 this time. What then? is verse 15. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. We sang that in worship. My chains are gone, my heart is new. And having been set free from sin, having, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, it's a hopeless cycle. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We were once enslaved to sin, trapped in a hopeless cycle. 
But now Paul is saying, you have been set free from the dominion of sin. Verse 17, he's talking about our new identity as justified ones. You have become obedient from the heart when you put your trust in Jesus. What does that mean? It means now it is possible to resist sin. It's no longer irresistible to us. We can obey God from our hearts. God's grace has restored to us a will that wants to do what God wants. The gospel has made us new creations, no longer helpless with regard to sin. This is good news. This is really, really good news. We are able to say no to ungodliness. That's the ongoing power of the gospel in our lives. And we don't always use our freedom properly. We still sin. But over time, we learn increasingly to choose holiness. Our sanctification is ongoing. It's slow moving. But we are being saved from sin's power, increasingly free from its pull. And Titus 2, there's three verses in Titus 2, 11, 12, and 13, which basically sum up like the big picture of God's salvation. Titus 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, justification, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this age. That's sanctification. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the inheritance to which we have been promised, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is glorification, and that is where we're heading. Three verses and three stages there of our, the great, big, overarching plan of salvation. You see, change is possible. If you ever find yourself saying, I'm never going to change, or I'm be like this for the rest of my life, just struggling with this, this issue constantly, you know, that is a lie. And we need to recognize that it is a lie. Change is possible. In fact, it is more than possible. It is inevitable if you have put your trust in Jesus. And you know, this church and, and churches all over this nation need to be champions of change because we carry with us, in us, and through us this message that change is possible and it's inevitable, not just because, not because on us, but because of the ongoing power of the gospel. And that is something that we can just herald to a world that is desperate to change and desperate to see transformation. We are empowered from within by a supernatural power. And let's not be under any delusion. This is not an external thing when it attempts to change. God's not interested in making us more impressive by worldly standards. He does a work within us that is lasting and permanent. And huge sections of the epistles are devoted to teaching believers what it means to walk as children of the light. Or Paul uses this phrase, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He encourages believers in Ephesians 4 to put off your old self. So you always use these phrases, put off your old self, your old way of living. Put this away, your former manner of life. Be renewed by the spirit in your mind and put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And he says, encourages people, be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So in sanctification, faith receives the ongoing power of Christ that works inside of us for practical holiness, 
The Spirit works within us, empowering us to choose godliness and to be conformed into the image of Christ. And finally, glorification. That is freedom from sin's presence. We continue this slow-moving battle against sin our entire earthly lives, but when we have run the race and we have fought the good fight, we will enter into the presence of the Lord forever. It's a guarantee. (laughs) There we will be glorified. It's going to happen. In his presence, there is no sin. The race will be finished. It will be won. We will be saved from the presence of sin because we will be in the presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is the moment that we are looking to. We trade the presence of sin for the presence of God. Why is this zoomed out view perspective so important? It's important because how we think about our lives, where we've come from, where we're going, that determines how we behave. In other words, how we define ourselves is key to understanding why we do the things that we do. That question, why do people do the things that they do? We heard it last week that people are part of a story. People have been somewhere and they believe they're going somewhere and their behavior flows from their identity, their their perception of themselves. At conversion, though, we get a new identity and a change in behavior follows a change in identity. So as an example, when I got married, my identity changed from being a single woman to being a married woman. Now, some of my behavior changed immediately after that. I immediately started behaving differently. And some of the changes that I need to make are slower and ongoing, and and some of them are still yet to be made. But my behavior changed when my identity changed. And it's the same for us. When we become Christ's, when our lives are hidden in Christ, we continue to embrace this new identity and it changes us from the inside out. So how does it change us? We're zooming in now. How does it change us? We know that this changed identity has changed us at a heart level, and that's so important. We need to really look at this. We now can desire to do God's will from within us. Behavioral issues in our lives are always due to deep abiding issues in our heart. This is when we're talking about our heart. When it comes to this issue of how we change, if the heart doesn't change, there cannot be lasting change. That's why these self-help books ultimately never do help, because they can't change your heart. So when we ask these change questions, what we're not looking for is a new behavioral agenda. We're not looking for modified behavior. We're looking for heart transformation. It's a difference. It's actually not enough to think that genuine change can be brought about by giving people three good steps to doing this or these three strategies to improve this because people don't need strategies, they need heart change. If you're helping someone in their struggle to overcome sin, it's not enough to stay at surface level and give people three easy strategies or three strategies to help overcome what they're dealing with. And I've done that before in my life. I've said to someone struggling with sin, right, join a community, read your Bible every day, pray. None of those things are wrong, and all of those things can bring lasting change, but it's not actually going deep enough with somebody. It's not helping someone to really see what's going on. 
so cheesy. I love this saying, at the heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. And I love that because that's really what's going on. When we have to look deeper to issues of the heart, if the heart doesn't change, there cannot be lasting change. So how do we continue to change at a heart level? We know we've been given this new heart that is capable of resisting ungodliness, that is able to say no to ungodliness, but how do we continue to change? Now, of course, the Holy Spirit is at work within us and it bears, he bears fruit in our lives that leads us to change in our character. And change isn't possible at heart level without the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's be really clear about that. But we have a huge part to play in that. How? The Bible's very clear. There are actually three non-negotiable elements of change. Confession, repentance, and faith. And we have to be committed to those three things in our personal lives if we're going to change. They're non-negotiables. Confession and repentance actually embrace a gospel truth in salvation. And here's the gospel truth in salvation. That my greatest danger in my life exists not outside of me, but inside of me. That's a really important truth, which is sin. That's the gospel truth that saves us. My greatest danger in my life is not something that exists outside of me, but inside of me, because my sin is the greatest danger in my life, because one day I will stand before a righteous, holy God and give an account. When it comes to change, the truth is the same. The greatest barrier to change in our lives, though it's really hard to admit it, actually exists not outside of us, because I'm married to that person, or I've got these type of kids, or I've got this type of job, or I've got, had that type of upbringing, but inside of us. The greatest barriers to change in my life exist in me. Confession and repentance are not dirty words for the Christian. You know, just such a sense of that. You can say it and everyone's like, oh. But it's life-giving. It is life-giving grace to us that we can do this. They are daily habits. They should be daily habits, daily bread. Tertullian, who is an early church theologian, said, I was born for no other end than to repent. And we see this throughout Scripture in Romans 10, 9 to 10. For when the heart... With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's how we're saved. This is where hearts and mouths comes in. We confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart, and we are saved. It continues like that. In Psalm 32, 3 to 5, it says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 1 John 1 verse 9, it's consistent throughout Scripture. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 
In James 5, verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is hard, but it is a non-negotiable in the Christian life. There is this clear connection throughout Scripture between your heart and your mouth. There is a connection. There is heart change and the mouth confesses. To help understand the nitty-gritty workings of this, I'm going to refer to the, um, the work of a 17th century pastor called Thomas Watson. He wrote this um, big work on repentance and he listed ingredients that show us what true repentance looks like. Firstly, sight of sin. Now you might think, well, that's just obvious. That's just obvious what sin is. But sometimes we can't see our sin. That's why we need to spend time in the Word and in meaningful Christian community where there is a real accountability and that helps us to change because sometimes we can't see it. And just to be really clear, when we're talking about sin, we're not primarily talking about behavior or actions. You know, we can be so fixated, can't we, on the external and what people are doing. But actually, it's not those things that are of the most importance because... Romans 14 verse 23 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now that, that's a game changer. What does that mean? It means that rather than fixating on the wrong actions or on our wrong behavior, we should be looking deeper to the issues of our heart, to thinking about where there is unbelief. Now, this makes sense because Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So where there are actions or attitudes or thoughts that come from a place of no faith, unbelief, those acts displease God. This is a game changer for us because this is what this means. I can do lots of good and virtuous things in church, outside of church, externally. But if what's behind those things is faulty thinking or unbelief that is motivating them, those things don't please God. Okay, it's why Jesus had a real issue with the Pharisees. It doesn't matter about the outward works, what you're doing. It's your heart, it's your heart, it's your heart, it's your heart. It's constantly. And we can sometimes be like that, focusing either in our own lives or on other people's, if we're trying to help people, on the behavior externally. But it's harder, but under all of that, we need to be focusing on unbelief, because it's unbelief that motivates sin. When you see your sin, we can be grieved by it. Sorrow over sin was the second of these points. We mustn't deceive ourselves, though. Watson made the observation that some people are sorrowful because of sin, not because sin is sinful, but because sin is painful. And I'm going to illustrate that um, point from something in my own life later. But Paul says that same thing in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief 
so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What that's saying is that there is a difference between worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief says, I I feel terrible about this because I got caught and it's painful and I don't like it. Godly grief is different. It leads to repentance and to life. When we experience a godly grief, what it produces in us, again, is the recognition that our guilt is only removed at the cost of the blood of God himself, who voluntarily took on flesh and lived a perfect life, never once giving in to temptation, even though he was tempted by the father of liars himself, Jesus voluntarily clothed himself in that very sin that I've committed and took on the wrath of God for it, hell itself at Calvary. That's what produces godly grief in us. When we recognize that the thing that we've done that we're we're feeling bad about, that very sin was clothed on Jesus himself and he paid the penalty for it and took on the wrath of God for it and I'm forgiven at a price. That's what produces godly grief. And then confession comes in. Confession. Now, this is what Watson says. He says, sorrow is such a venom passion. It's such a passion in it. It must vent. It vents itself at the eyes by weeping and at the tongue by confession. So when we experience godly grief, what feels natural then is to confess. And confession is simply saying, I did it. It's taking personal responsibility for sin, for my words and my behavior, for my unbelief, without excuse and without shifting the blame. I did it. And what can follow that is this desire, this hatred of it. You know, I just don't want to have anything more to do with that in my life. I, want to, I just don't want to be there anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. When we get angry at our own sin, we reflect something of God's holiness to our own hearts and to the people around us. In Romans 12, Paul says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So we've had a, you know, we need to see it, we need to grieve it, confess it, and then we turn from sin. This is so crucial, but we don't just turn from sin, we turn from sin to Christ. And that's where heart change can happen. And these are the nitty gritty things, the truths in scripture to help us. Scripture tells us that we must not only repent, but we must turn actively from our sins that we commit. If we repent without a sincere desire to stop doing those things, then there's an ingredient missing. But at this point, it's so important. We don't just turn from our sins. We turn from it to Christ. If you try and turn, and if I try and turn away from my sins in my own strength, I will fail. I'll lose the motivation and the energy for this fight if I focus on my own self-effort. What we do when we turn to Christ is we focus on his effort on our behalf to help save us from the things that we're working on. Spurgeon said this in his book, All of Grace. He said, but listen, 
To repent is to change your mind about sin and Christ and all the great things of God. There is sorrow implied in this, but the main point is the turning of the heart from sin to Christ. If there be this turning, you have the essence of true repentance. And don't we want to be a people who experience true repentance? Not performance, but true repentance. Because that's how we change when we turn away from our sin and we turn to Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We behold Jesus, we look to Jesus, and that's a huge way that we can change. After confession, we turn from looking at ourselves And we look upwards and we see Jesus and we behold the glory of our risen king. See, this embraces the truth that Jesus didn't die for my past. He didn't just die for my future. He died for my here and my now. And he died for those very difficult moments that happen every single day when I have to confront the ugliness of my own heart and the call to live in a dramatically different way. It's not just an entrance, this incredible gospel, and it's not just an exit. It's the whole thing. Jesus died for my here and my now. And for every moment in between, justification and glorification. Now I've got, I just think it might be time for a bit of public confession. And before you all get nervous, I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about, well, I'm just going to confess. So at Ashburnham a few weekends ago, um, We'd had one night, a very cold night, in which I didn't sleep very well. And then the next morning, which is Saturday morning, James and I were supposed to be hosting one of the main sessions. Now, things were going fairly smoothly um, until I needed to find the kids and take them to kids' work. And James was at a meeting somewhere else. And I managed to find them. We all came back. Then they managed to empty all their water bottles that I'd filled up because they needed water bottles. They were giving water to the forest fairies or something in their game. But I had to refill the bottles. And um, as we were heading off, the kids were, which they were a little bit tentative about because they hadn't been yet, um, my youngest got hurt in the eye. No fault of anybody's, it was just an accident. And he started to cry and cry and cry. And he continued to cry for the next half an hour as we walked to the tents that kind of where the, where the kids were. And he, it turned into a full-on strop and sobbing and I don't want to do this and don't leave me in kids' work and mum, I don't want you to go. And I'll be honest, I was very impatient and cross. I felt under pressure because we were supposed to be hosting and I had to be there early. It was very hot. I felt, a little, I felt completely out of control and I didn't know what to do. And I responded in anger and impatience towards my children. Praise be to God, we're part of a church family and there were some wonderful people from our church that just helped. They, they you know, really were wonderful. And it, they, they kind of took the kids and, and it all sorted out and it all went fine. And after the meeting, I, um, I said to the kid, I'm so sorry for losing my temper. And I made some excuses like it was hot and I was under pressure, but I love you so much, yada, yada. Okay, so I kind of said sorry and it was fine. Three hours later, and I'm not exaggerating, probably less than that, two hours later, I lost the plot with James, which is really hard to do when you're camping because it's like angry words, but like hissed like this. Um, But I completely lost the plot. And um, it was about something ridiculous, like he wasn't where I wanted him to be and doing what I wanted him to do, you know. And so after we'd made up, because we had an argument for a few hours and then 
ignored each other. Ign but it wasn't an argument for a few hours. We argued and then we ignored each other for a little bit. And then I basically didn't like it because I hate being out of a relationship with James. It's painful to me. So I said, I'm so sorry. Just don't know why I was so angry. It's hot. I'm under pressure. And, and James said, I, I, he's a loving man. I forgive you. But why? Why do you get so angry? <laughs> and I, I did not say, thank you, darling, for this redemptive opportunity. <laughs> what I said instead was I got a bit red and went, well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm under pressure. It's hot. And then, uh, but I did think about it. And a bit later on, I was washing up. And um, had a few moments, I was like, Lord, why? Why have I been so angry today? And it's not going to be a surprise to any of you, but I was angry because I was very self-centered and selfish, and my plans were interrupted by my children and my husband. It's very simple. It wasn't a complicated thing. But underneath being hot and, you know, those excuses was just the desire for everything to go my way. I wanted things to happen like I wanted them to happen. And I was angry when that got disrupted. But why was I angry? So you keep asking those questions. Why was I selfish? Because the gospel has meant that I am no longer a slave to my old way of life. Hey, there's a new way for me. I don't have to be selfish. I can choose selflessness. So what was going on? Why did I choose to be selfish? And here's where we're going to kind of finish. Because I chose to be selfish because, and this might seem ridiculous to you, but life happens in these small moments, okay? So I'm not being over-intense. This is why I kind of felt revelation from God. I got impatient and angry because I basically stopped in those moments believing the promises of God, choosing to be satisfied in the great promises of God. You see, when things happen outside of our control, God's allowed them to happen, right? And God allows them to happen for our good, for our sanctification. But I was resisting it. I didn't want my kid crying and hanging off me when I needed to be somewhere else. And I didn't want to be doing what I had to do without James around when I needed him. This is the thing. Patience is a fruit that the Spirit bears in us. But it requires our cooperation as well. Because what happens is, as Galatians 3 verse 5 says this, so incredible. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. You see, when we lose faith, even in moments in the great promises of God, and his promises to work all things for our good, for those who are in Christ Jesus, when we, when we stop looking at those things, that's when we can slip into to sin and unbelief. Now, I can change. This is where we kind of got to, because I repented in that moment when I realized I repented of my selfishness, repented of my anger, but I didn't stop there, because we don't keep looking introspectively and feeling bad about it. We then look to Christ and believed, I can change in this battle against impatience by being satisfied with all that God promises to be for me and to do for me. When I recognize that these things that happen outside of my control are going to be used for my good, and Jesus did not choose the easy way. He did not despise the cross. He did not he choose comfort and ease. He took that hard, torturous walk to Calvary and he was clothed in the very sin that I just committed. And as I look to him as my hope and my salvation, my heart is turned in faith towards him and I can be changed. It's the same for us all this morning. We need to embrace this incredible overarching message of how the gospel changes us. 
But I just had this word from Deuteronomy 30. I just wanted to say, Moses said to the children of Israel, but the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart, so you can do it. And I just want to encourage you, through my little example of Ashburnham and all the other examples I could tell you about since then, God is doing a work in us. We can do it. We can choose godliness. We can allow the power of the gospel to change our hearts. So I'd love us to respond to this, because I believe you had a word this morning in um, as we were praying for this meeting about barriers being broken down. And I just felt, actually, that there are barriers in people's lives this morning to change. It might be unrepented sin that's not been repented of. It might be something else, unforgiveness. It might be something else entirely. You might just think, I want to have fresh faith in the great promises of God. But if there are barriers to change, I believe God has business to do with us this morning.